if people can determine your faith one way or the other, then you've made the tipping point rely on imperfect people instead of a perfect God. You're listening to Absurdity with Ryan Becker, the podcast where we embrace the absurdity of everything. From here, we can move conversations forward by learning how to communicate effectively, listen intently, and love patiently. Welcome to Absurdity. Hey guys, it's Ryan Becker and you are listening to Absurdity. So glad that you are joining us for this week's episode where we talk about responding to poor leadership. And if uh, you've been a listener and you've been wondering if I'm ever going to talk about the General Conference and the Annual Council that just took place in 2017, well, you've come to the right place. This is the episode where we do that. If you are not a Seventh-day Adventist and you listen, hey, thanks for listening. Hey, I really love having an audience base that's larger than just my own faith base and my own uh, expression of faith. But um, don't worry, there's going to be explanations for everything. And if you have any questions or, or want to know more, you can always contact me outside of the cast. But I've tried to give you a, a pretty accurate picture so that you can understand what is going on uh, with with our church and, and what's kind of been happening. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to be we're talking about poor leadership, which means that you guessed it. I probably have some strong opinions about everything that happened at general conference uh, at annual council. So before that, uh, before that spiel, uh, before that whole part of this episode uh, dives in after the, after the break, I do want to let you know of a couple things. The first thing is that uh, we originally had a duplicate listing of our podcast on iTunes. That is no longer the case. They got rid of it which means that we are free and you can subscribe to the right one. So I hope that you will subscribe to the main listing, the only listing now of absurdity on iTunes. Without further ado, here is my talk on responding to poor leadership as a result of the 2017 Seventh-day Adventist Annual Council. In the beginning of October 2017, the Seventh-day Adventist Church General Conference met for its annual council. Now, to understand everything that I just said, uh, if you're a non-Adventist, you have no idea what, what that means if you're not an Adventist. So I want to explain to you kind of what the Seventh-day Adventist church structure looks like. So at the, late, at the local level, right, at, at a, you know, just down the street, you'll see a Seventh-day Adventist church. Okay, so we start there with the local church. Now, above that is a conference. And the conference typically is by state. So there's the Florida conference. Uh, there's Uh, the Texas conference, there's the Michigan conference, and the conference is the entity that owns and technically can govern over the uh, local church. So all of the local churches in a conference are controlled by that conference. However, the conference officials are nominated and elected by uh, constituents in the conference. So it's similar to government in that respect. So you've got the local church and you've got the state conference. All pastors of local churches are actually employees of, of a conference. Uh, typically, these are by state. Some are regional, like the Georgia Cumberland Conference actually reaches into part of Tennessee. Um, the Gulf States Conference is all of uh, Louisiana, Alabama, part of the Florida Panhandle, and all of Mississippi. So you've got a few... Uh, you've got uh, you've got a few conferences that break that norm, right? So above the conference, then you've got the union, and the union takes care of an entire region of... Um, of an area. And I'm going to use the United States as an example, uh, but it's really structured this way across the entire world. So you've got the church at the local level, the conference at the state level, 
and then the union at the regional level. So uh, I'm recording this in the Carolina Conference, which is the conference that, that manages both North and South Carolina. And we are in the Southern Union, which takes care of the, uh, the Southeastern United States. So we are in the Southern Union. Above that is division. Division usually takes care of an entire continent. So we are in the North American Division, which handles the United States, Canada, and multiple territories owned by um, the United States as well. And then above divisions, you have the General Conference, which would be the World Church. Its current headquarters is in the United States, um, but it is representative of the entire world. Now, everything that we do uh, on a World Church level happens through the GC in session or the General Conference in session. So the General Conference meets uh, every five years with several uh, thousands, I mean, hundreds of delegates from around the world, uh, from different unions and divisions. But every year, the General Conference meets as in a smaller session uh, called Annual Council, and they meet twice. So there's the Spring Annual Council and the Fall Annual Council. The Spring Annual Council takes care of some housekeeping items, a lot of budget stuff, while the Fall Annual Council takes care of more of the bigger overarching or, or hard-hitting or pressing issues. It also helps to determine the agenda for uh, a larger general conference that happens every five years. That's the one that happens with with delegates from all over the world for uh, in a in a large number. We usually rent out an arena. Um, the last one was in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, there was one uh, years ago in uh, the Georgia Dome, which is now gone. And so, and we usually rent it out for like two weeks. So it's this big thing. Uh, it's like it, it's huge for the Adventist Church. Now. To understand what happened at this year's annual council in October, or their fall annual council, uh, you, you need to have a little bit of background here. So in 2015, at the big general conference session, there was a vote to t that took place to decide whether divisions or continents could decide on their own if they wanted to ordain women. There had been an ordination committee, uh, TOSC, the Theology of Ordination Study Commission, that uh, studied the basis for women's ordination, if it was biblical or not, and they decided that it was a non-issue and people could decide what they wanted to on it. So this vote was not yes or no to ordain women. That was already figured out that that's not actually a bad thing. But it was to allow divisions to decide for themselves. So if there was a division that wasn't yet ready to because of cultural issues, uh, whatever, they could decide not to. The vote ended up in a no, meaning that divisions couldn't decide for themselves, which meant that the current policy of not ordaining women to pastors in general stayed put. So several unions around the world, uh, the Netherlands did this. Uh, there are several unions in, in the United States that did this. Uh, they, they have been ordaining women since then and before then, uh, and they've been ordaining them in leadership. And this is seen as something against the spirit of the vote in 2015. So the GC, in response to this, put together a uh, committee to work on reconciliation, and it was called the Unity in Mission Oversight Committee. And it was, it was to figure out a reconciliation plan between the out-of-policy, quote-unquote, unions and uh, divisions. With and and get them somehow in harmony with the general conference. So they first embarked on a year long process of listening to each other, where um, the committee members would travel to different unions and meet with them and talk with them and pray with them and figure out what was going on uh, to figure out if there was really a spirit of rebellion or whatever. Just a year of listening and seeing if there was any way to come to terms without any further pressing matters. 
Now, what's funny is that it's arguable in the first place uh, whether or not these divisions and these unions are out of policy. Uh, the policy itself, it, it, if you're going to read it, it depends largely on the reader's interpretation. Uh, George and I has come out with a lot of defenses uh, for unions, and there are others that have come out with a lot of defenses uh, or attacks against them, calling them rebellious and out of policy. And so what we're seeing is that uh, this interpretation of policy is not so black and white. It's just not plain. So what resulted after this year of reconciliation was what was called the Unity in Mission document. Now, this document was presented at the 2017 Fall Annual Council in October, and it was, I believe, a 14-page document outlining what should be done to prevent leaders who will break policy later uh, and how we should treat those leaders who are currently out of policy. And so there, there was a lot in there. I know one of the things was pastors and, and leaders, conference leaders, and, and any any member of the delegacy for the general conference would have to sign a statement basically saying that they believed and agreed with all of um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church's beliefs and policies and would agree to not speak out against them in their, in their position. So there was a lot in this document that people really struggled with, uh, and you might see why that, that that requirement of leaders is a little bit concerning. I know I can see why, even as a pastor myself. But I'm not going to go much more into the details of the document itself. That can be a whole episode in and of itself. And if you want to know, you can research it. You can quickly Google the Unity and Mission document, Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I'm sure you'll find some form of it. But the document itself, while containing a lot of concerning elements, is not really what bothered me. See, the document itself was troublesome, yes. But at annual council, it was not the worst thing that happened. In my opinion, it's how the document was handled by those who brought it forth. It was everything around this document that made me not want to trust it, even if it was the greatest sounding thing on the planet. Let me uh, give you some background. Moving into annual council, the committee was tasked with writing this document, voting on it, approving it, getting it ready for annual council. And the document was not sent to the delegates ahead of time. In fact, when asked the day before it would be discussed by the council floor, uh, Ted Wilson, our general conference president or our world church president, outright said no. And this was just the day before. The document had already been voted on, approved, and, and completed by its committee uh, more than a week prior to them asking to release this, right? This is the day before the five-hour meeting session was supposed to take place to discuss and vote on this 14-page document that would quite literally hold people's jobs in its hands. In addition to this, when the document was approved by the committee, and this was brought to light on the floor of the discussion, they received votes by proxy. In other words, people weren't in attendance for the committee when they voted for the approval of this document to be sent to annual council. Um, they, they received these votes by proxy, which in, it, in and of itself is out of policy. The policy currently states that there is uh, no room for proxy votes on these sort of things. So I find it funny that the document talking about what we do if we break policy was actually created by breaking policy and approved by breaking policy. But Ted Wilson, when this was brought up, instead of acknowledging this fact, and he served as the committee or the council chair uh, for the annual council session, 
But instead of acknowledging that this is what happened and, and admitting it and owning up to it, he pivoted to how inappropriate was uh, how inappropriate it was that the information was leaked in the first place. So Ted Wilson went full Donald Trump and started talking about leakers and how unfortunate it was that there were leakers that allowed this information that should have never seen the light of day get out. And I find that hilarious. So the 14 page document was first seen at the beginning of the meeting that they would discuss it. Not even the day it was handed out at the beginning of the meeting. Now, while there was a vote to change how long the meeting would last, the meeting was originally supposed to be from 1 to 6 p.m. on a Tuesday. But the vote at the very beginning of the session was taken to uh, extend that meeting time indefinitely, which meant basically that the meeting would run until they they, uh, reached some sort of voting conclusion. Um, But originally, the time was spent was was meant to be only five hours. And that's really, really important for what I'm about to explain to you. They spent the first 30 to 45 minutes figuring out how the day would work and explaining how the voting would work. On top of this, they there were motions made to extend the meeting time, as I just mentioned, as well as giving delegates uh, three minutes instead of two minutes to actually share what they wanted to share. That vote and motion did not get passed. But so they spent the majority of the first hour just taking care of housekeeping items. And it was clear that not even Ted Wilson understood exactly how the voting was going to work. And there were some things that he was trying to figure out on the fly. And this is this is really significant, given that this was this is an issue that has been in the spotlight of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for the last decade, and especially for the last three, four years. Right? This has been huge. And 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 everyone was waiting for this meeting, and they were still trying to figure out how they wanted to do the voting and how to explain it in a clear way. So then at 145, two o'clock. They spend the next hour and a half reading the document out loud to everyone. Remember, this meeting, this five-hour time, that an hour of it is already gone, this is the only time that the council is given to discuss the document that they haven't been given to read, and now their time to discuss it is being taken up by someone reading the document out loud to them like it's some sort of children's book. Now, I hope you can hear the frustration in my voice because this is absolutely ridiculous and it shouts political power play. Now, I'm not going to say that that Ted Wilson or anyone from the General Conference intended it to come across this way, but it shouts that very, very loudly. Had they just released the document earlier, the council could have had that extra hour and a half to discuss the details and figure out what to do with that document. So now the committee has less than half the time. It's like 3.15 that the discussion's about to start. So less than half the time to actually discuss the document and vote according to the original schedule. Now, luckily, they had already passed a vote to extend the meeting time, which which put this uh, out of commission as a method to uh, force the document through. But with 95% of the delegation being older, and having sat in meetings for days leading up to this moment, I can't imagine that as the day went on, members and delegates of the committee were going to be more energized. 
exhaustion and fatigue set in quickly in these meetings. Man, I go to just regular pastor's meetings and I'm wiped out by like an hour in and I'm just done and I'm tired and I want to go home and just and just sleep, right? Meetings are hard to sit through even when they are as important and contentious as this. So exhaustion and fatigue set in quickly in these meetings, meaning that the longer this goes, the harder it will be for them to come to a conclusion and resolve it. The document, to the success and credit of the members on the floor, eventually got sent back to the Unity and Mission Oversight Committee for corrections and revisions, because there were too many issues and conflicts uh, in the document. So through some super sleuthing, as well as the leaks that had come out the night before, they were able to um, bring up enough troubling issues with the document that could not be accurately answered by its creators to... Um, they were able to bring up enough of those to send it back to its committee. Does this strategy of holding that document until voting time sound familiar? It should. It might remind you of the recent GOP tax bill that was over 400 pages long and sent to members of uh, Congress two hours before the vote was to take place. Now, this vote ended up passing, meaning that because of partisanship, the actual content of the tax bill didn't matter. The bill already had its support no matter what it contained. And we know that to be true because they accidentally voted in something that was detrimental and the opposite of what they wanted to accomplish. Now, I'm not going to be up here and tell you that with 100% certainty that there was nefarious intent on the side of the General Conference administrators to get this document approved. All right, I'm not going to say that all of this was intentional because I don't know their hearts and I don't know their minds. Chances are they could have been doing the best that they could and this was and they want and just like most of us do, they wanted this issue to simply already be resolved and it wasn't getting there and they wanted to be done with it. But I'm not going to sit here and call Ted Wilson a Jesuit trying to keep us in disunity. I'm not going to say uh, anything about his, him being nefarious, though I think that the way this was done was highly inappropriate. Whether all of this was calculated and intentional on the part of our leaders doesn't really matter in this case unless they admit it, at least for the purposes of this podcast episode. What does matter is this. What we witnessed that day and leading up to that day was incredibly poor leadership. Lack of transparency in the process, blocking and hiding the document until the meeting itself, breaking policy to approve a document that talked about breaking policy, pivoting to blame leaking members for leadership mistakes, controlling agenda time so that conversation is stifled and discussion is limited, and creating a confusing voting process and system that not even the council chair fully understood. Do you see how all of these things would reflect poor leadership in what is uh, seeming to be the biggest issue of the early 2000s or the early 21st century for the Adventist denomination? Do you see why this is poor leadership? Now, to my uh, my Adventists or my my listeners who are not Adventists, I want to explain to you something, which is that 99% of the time uh, I am an Adventist and I don't think about a lot of this stuff or I don't care 
um, because I'm doing things with my local church, right? My faith is not based on what happens at the GC level. So if you're listening to this and thinking, yeah, this is why I'm not Adventist, you'll find politics anywhere. So good luck finding anywhere where politics isn't a thing. You're seeing it in evangelicalism with the Nashville statement right now, and you're seeing uh, politics play out on a much uh, broader scale. So my question this episode in dealing with the fallout of the annual council and dealing with everything that follows from it leading up to next year's annual council when this document is brought back in a different light. My question is, what's our response to poor leadership? Whether it's on the denominational level or whether it's on the local church level, what is your response to poor leadership? Is it to duck your head, turn the other way and run? Is it fight back? Is it call them out publicly? Is it passive aggressively attack them? Is it uh, frustrate uh, out of frustration, complain to your friends and to your family? Or is it to simply ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist, sticking your fingers in your ears? And to be honest, whatever whatever way of reacting to this or responding to this you choose, I don't really blame you. Uh, I've done some form of all of them at some point for different reasons. And I'll admit, Overall, I feel largely powerless in dealing with a lot of this. I don't sit in those meetings. I don't really have a voice there. In fact, the young adults that were present, I don't ever remember voting for them in any sort of capacity to be taken as delegates to the General Conference World Church Annual Council. But I do have a voice here. I have a life here on the local level, and believe it or not, there is a way for us to respond. But I want to make this clear, and I see this a lot with people who, who support women's ordination or, or anyone else. The way we respond, in my opinion, is not by withholding tithe dollars. Because what happens in the Adventist church is that a larger church's tithe dollars will go up to the top and sprint and trickle down back into churches, back into smaller churches. It also pays for um, most of the ministries of the Adventist church, and it pays our paychecks as pastors. Tithe from everywhere pays our paychecks. So by withholding tithe dollars, you don't hurt the men at the top. Instead, you hurt everyone. The small churches that depend on the larger churches to keep operating, you hurt them, you hurt pastors, you hurt conference employees who don't have any skin in the game on these issues, and you hurt anyone who receives a paycheck because of tithe. These are the people you hurt by withholding tithe. So if you have allies that are paid ministers of the Adventist church in whatever belief system you hold, right, you're hurting them by withholding your tithe, your tithe dollars right? Tithe is just distributed income for the church, and we often end up hurting innocent people with our anger and response in this area. So then what is our voice, and how can we respond to poor leadership? Now, there are principles here that extend far beyond the church level, and so I'd invite you, if you are not religious, if you're not faithful, um, if you don't care about it, there might be something in here that you are able to adopt and adapt to your situation. The first thing, the first thing we need to do is realize who we are. We are not the sum of our leadership. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist, you are one because you believe the bulk of what we believe. You base your faith on what you believe, not on other people. 
And I would argue that if other people's misbehavior or bad behavior can turn you away from faith, then it's not God you had, in, you had your faith in to begin with. If people can determine your faith one way or the other, then you've made the tipping point rely on imperfect people instead of a perfect God. And so perhaps I would challenge you and say maybe there's a gut check that needs to happen here. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe it. My faith does not rest in Ted Wilson, doesn't rest in the politics of an institutionalized denomination. Rather, it rests in God. Beyond that, I am Seventh-day Adventist because no other expression of faith portrays or positively discusses and dives into what I believe. If I believe in the Saturday Sabbath, and I believe that people don't immediately go anywhere when they die, and if I don't believe in the immortal soul, then there's really no other denomination or place that I found that embraces all three of those. And if you don't embrace them, then you're automatically espousing something different and you can be, and you're exposed to teachings that you don't agree with. Now I'm okay with being exposed to them, but I don't want to embrace teachings that I don't believe to be true. So that's hard, right? So I'm an Adventist because of what I believe and I realize why I am who I am. So realize who you are. You're a Seventh-day Adventist and realize why you are an Adventist. It is not because of people, right? I'm not an American because of Trump. I'm an American because I'm an American. I'm not an American because of Barack Obama. I'm an American. Simple as that, right? And no one can take that from me unless I allow them to or unless I renounce it myself. And the same is true about Adventism. No one can take your beliefs away from you unless you renounce them yourself. So that's the first thing that we need to realize. The second thing that I think we need to understand is that leadership is about more than authority. So currently, and, and this is kind of the feeling of helplessness or powerlessness that I have, uh, there's, this, uh, there's this idea that leadership only contains authority. And if you don't have a position of authority, then there's no way that you can be a leader. But I want to challenge that idea. There's this, uh, there, there's, I, I think leadership is a tug of war. I think it's a tug of war between two major uh, ideas, influence and authority. Influence being your ability to talk with other people, influence them, uh, your reputation with them, et cetera. Authority being the actual responsibility and power that you've been given uh, to create things, make things happen, uh, assign tasks, whatever, right? So authority is position, influence is person. Clay Scroggins in his book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, says that influence always outpaces authority. Leaders who consistently leverage their authority to lead are far less effective in the long term than leaders who leverage their influence. Each of us, each of us is a center of influence. We can influence others around us positively or negatively. And while we may not be able to change someone's mind on a certain belief, we certainly can influence people to stay engaged and involved. We can keep the conversation moving forward and active, and we can prevent a lot of this stuff from receding back into the shadows where no one will discuss it anymore. Man, why do you think I'm releasing this episode months after the actual meeting took place? I'm talking about a meeting that took place in October of 2017, and you're listening to this now. So we're talking about something that happened months ago. And the reason being, I don't want to let this just sit back into the shadows. This idea of poor leadership, this idea of everything that was wrong that happened at the 2017 annual council needs to 
not happen again. And I want to look at the past and learn from it and make a better future. It's important that we don't stop talking about these things, but that we remember them. By continuing this conversation, we bring what can recede into the ether back into the light, and we keep it there, and we don't let it leave. We grab hold, and we don't let go. So by engaging in conversations with church members, with pastors, with the Twitterverse, with Facebook, whomever, we can keep the spotlight where it needs to be, and we can work to make things better. We need to leverage our influence. The third thing, and this is eventually going to tie back into influence versus authority. We need to get involved locally. Ultimately, what happens at the GC is representative of the church at a local level. So with the graying of the church, that's the term used for the average age raising and younger people leaving the church, right? So with that and the fact that our average age is currently in the high 50s of our membership, it makes sense that at annual council, uh, the delegation reflects this reality. Young adults and young people in general are largely absent in voting power, in voice, uh, in representation. There's really not a lot there. And it makes sense if we're also uh, the ones that are least present in the church. Young adults complain that there's no representation for them. Yet with young adults leaving in droves, who is left then to represent them? There are a lot of us, and, and I'm, I've been there, and there's part of me that is still there, I'll be honest. There's a lot of us that expect the church to bend to our will without ever engaging the church when it doesn't. We don't want to engage in the church. We don't want to be a part of something unless it caters to us. But the church isn't about catering to you or to me. See, we, many of us will complain nonstop about how terrible the church is, the institutionalized church, or maybe your even local church, but then we don't even attend. We don't attend a different church. And if we do attend a church or a different church than the one we complain about, then that's literally all we do. So all we do is attend. We don't get involved. We don't do anything more. We don't help with anything. And we don't help create a better atmosphere or the atmosphere that we do want to see in the church. And then we complain that there are no opportunities in leadership for us. Leadership is more than authority, and it's more than a position. Leadership comes always in the form of a person who can influence. If we want to be taken seriously as young adults, and that's assuming that you're a young adult listening to this, if you're not, and you're just someone who agrees with the general uh, viewpoint that I'm taking here, then by all means, let this be an echo chamber for you. I don't care. It's important to put our money where our mouth is if we want to be taken seriously. It's important for us to get to work. No one walks into a building and is handed the CEO position without working for it first and having some job experience, right? It's not, even if someone walks into a company as the new CEO, they've likely had managerial experience in the past. Man, we just saw, what was it, last week or, or not last week, am I saying? We just saw recently judges that were appointed by Trump who couldn't answer a single question in two minutes um, and had never tried a case or argued a motion in court. And they were nominees to be judges. And one of them stepped down. You see, no one is just handed the keys to the kingdom without first putting some money where their mouth is. And I don't mean literal money, though. In some cases, that might be the case. 
No one walks in and gets a CEO position. And in the same place for us, we can't expect the church to bend to our will when we're not even willing to engage with it when we don't. Think of all the friends that you've that you have that have stuck with you through conflict and through troubling times in your life. And then think of all the people that didn't stick by you. You wouldn't consider those people your friends. Some of them you may not even consider your family anymore. And yet we do this with the church. If the church is going through a rough time or the church doesn't seem to uh, treat us with the same kind of respect that we would like that like it to, then we say, no, I don't want to be a part of you when you're bad. I only want to be a part of you when you're good. And if we don't want people doing that to us, then I think it's a little bit disingenuine and hypocritical for us to do it to the church. Growing up Adventist and being exposed to only what you were taught in your childhood is not enough of a resume. In fact, it's a very limited view of the faith we claim to hold or believing. Andy Stanley says something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm quoting him loosely here, that a childhood faith cannot be sustained in an adulthood reality or in an adult world. Our faith must grow up with us. But for many, our faith has stayed in the youth room while the rest of our life has marched on. As a child in church, you were a spectator. You didn't have to take charge of your faith. You were taught it. You, didn't, you were taught how to sit. You were taught how to behave. You were taught what to do, and you were taught how to do it. As an adult, it's no wonder that that method doesn't work for you anymore. But if you haven't stepped into any other role than being the spectator your entire life, then it's no wonder you hate the church or have a bone to pick with it. So my challenge to you, if you've been this person who's grown up with only this one-dimensional view of church, get involved and change it. Do something different. You were not meant to be a spectator your whole life with your faith. Nor were you meant to have someone else tell you how to live your whole life. The church doesn't survive if everyone is a spectator, nor does it survive if everyone is a child. And currently, what we're seeing in trends is the church doesn't survive if everyone is ancient and if everyone is graying. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. If we want this church to look different and become different, it will not find change without us. But if we aren't ready to step into these roles, if we aren't, if we aren't working hard and growing up our faith to have it catch up to where we are, then there's no way we'll be able to do anything effective. Those in our lives that we love, those people in our lives that we love, will never become better without the honesty of loved ones who lovingly tell them the truth and stay close to them through strife and conflict. For us, it must be the same with our church, and I think that we must stay close to the church, stay engaged in the church in order to move the church forward. Now, this is a soapbox, definitely, but I think these are three key things that we can realize when we talk about what to do in response to poor leadership, and that is to change the game. We must focus on where our influence is, even if that influence is only over ourselves. And maybe the reason that you aren't being led well in your faith is because you aren't leading yourself well. You talk about a church that does not dive into uh, important issues that you want to talk about or, or, or 
scriptures that you want to read, but then you're not reading those scriptures yourself, or you're not learning about those issues yourself. You're waiting for someone else to lead you well instead of leading yourself well. And there are areas of my life where I do this and I'm working on changing them, whether it's a establishing a daily routine or being working on my time management skills, whatever it is, there are spaces where I'm hoping something, a third party manages my time for me and structures my day for me instead of taking my life by the reins and leading myself well to interact with, engage with, and create my life the way I want to create it. I would challenge you, I would challenge all of us, myself included, to not run away from conflict, especially to not run away from this conflict. But instead, I challenge you to face it head on, to find joy and true unity at the other end. After all, I know in my life, I have learned the most and improved the most because of facing conflict and learning from it instead of running from it. But I don't want to tell you that I don't want to tell you that and then have you assume that I've always handled everything appropriately. That's not the case at all. Right? Anyone who knows me uh, can probably tell you a million times that I've screwed up, done something different or hidden and run away from conflict. But I can tell you the only time I have grown as a human being is when I've embraced that conflict and faced it. And for us in the church, it is important for us to do the same. And so in response to poor leadership, the first thing I want you to walk away today with is realizing who you are and why you are. Realizing who you are and why you are. The second thing is understand that your leadership and your ability to lead is more dependent on your influence than your authority. It is more dependent on a person than it is a position. And lastly, Get involved locally, because the more you do locally, the more things are impacted globally. The more a spotlight gets drawn onto what you're doing and your voice gets amplified, right? And if you want to make a difference, that's the way to do it. It's how politics runs, even on the government standpoint. Everything revolves locally. Man, the civil rights movement of the the 60s and and the late 50s happened because, because of people getting involved locally protesting and making a big deal and keeping the issues that were important at the forefront. So my challenge to you, find a way to get involved locally. And I hope this helps. And I hope that you can leverage whatever influence you have to make a difference because ultimately our lives and our faith Our faith should not be determined and defined by poor leadership or good leadership. Rather, it should be defined by our beliefs and by our relationship with God. And I do hope that your relationship with God is growing. Uh, That is a prayer that I have as I do this podcast and as as I talk with people. But nothing gets better if we run away. Nothing. So I would challenge you today, get involved locally. Remember who you are and why you are. And remember that your influence is more important than your authority. So there you have it, our episode on responding to poor leadership and using our GC annual council as an example. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed this discussion uh, and I hope that you've found some space in your life that maybe you can 
uh, create more of some of the attitudes that can best help us respond to poor leadership. I do want to let you know before we sign off that Absurdity Now does have a Patreon. And uh, if you want to go visit it, patreon.com slash absurditypodcast. Uh, And I appreciate anything that you want to throw my way. I'm not, for now, there's no big perks other than all of my patrons will get episodes a week before they go live. But if you want to support what I'm doing, if you believe in it, and if you want it to continue, uh, this is the best way to let me know other than feedback and, and reviews. Every dollar that you give, every dollar that is sent in through Patreon allows me to keep this podcast running. It allows me to upgrade equipment and uh, cover all of the operating costs for this on a monthly basis. So you can head on over to patreon.com slash absurdity podcast. There's also going to be a link in the episode description that you can check out as well. If you haven't yet, go on iTunes, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing, and let me know uh, ways that I can improve or things that I'm doing well in I appreciate any and all feedback as it's the way that I get better at doing this and it's the way that I create better content for you to enjoy. Thanks for listening to Absurdity and we will see you next week. 